thank you for <clears throat> thank you for turning I'm just gonna fucking quit it. <laughs> thank you for tuning into this episode of the Cole Memo featuring Charlie Bactel. Just really quick before I send you into this episode, I wanted to give you a heads up about two things. First of all, I've had this issue happen before, and I think I know the uh, solution to the issue, but I, I just still need to buy something. So basically, I have a portable recorder, and depending on where I'm at, it will pick up radio. Actually, if you check out our future series on the legal sex industry in America, which you can find at colememo.com slash sex, you'll see in one of our episodes that my recorder was actually picking up CB radio, which was actually really cool considering the circumstances. So that is all to say that in this episode, you might hear a little bit of background noise, which is radio. And I did my best to remove it. And I think it's not intrusive, but just in case you hear a little jingle or chatter in the background, you're not going crazy. Well, you might be, I'm just joking. You're not going crazy. There are, is some audio in the background of this recording. The other thing I wanted to give full and candid disclosure about is the fact that I am an investor in Cresco. Now, let's be very clear about <laughs> my investment portfolio. And uh, yeah, let's just talk about that for a second. So first of all, I purchased this stock, 13 shares, by the way, not a huge amount, on TD Ameritrade. Uh, I think a few years ago at this point, maybe it, definitely, at least, definitely at least a year ago. I think it was during the uh, pandemic, like lockdown. Anyways, though, I purchased these stocks on TD Ameritrade, and frankly, I've ha I haven't looked at them since then. Today, I learned, because I wanted to put this disclosure in, today I learned that t TD Ameritrade is no longer even a thing. So when I logged into my TD Ameritrade account to tell you how much stock I owned, it said I needed to sign up for a Schwab account, Charles Schwab. So I did that. And uh, like I said, I was able to confirm that I have 13 shares of stock worth $24 at this point uh, in Cresco Labs. I felt it was important to be completely candid about that. Not only the fact that I do hold stock, but also the fact that, frankly, I just Googled how to purchase cannabis stock and found that TD Ameritrade was the best option. And I, ha I hadn't even checked the cannabis stocks uh, since I had made that purchase. So when I went to look up, how many, how much stock do I even have? Uh, I, I was At first, I was like, shit, did I lose it? Because TD Ameritrade is no longer a thing. Like, do I just, is that what happens? You just lose stock. See, this shows you how much I know about investments. Um, and for all those reasons, I felt this was an appropriate disclosure at the top of the episode. Folks, I hope you find value in this episode. Enjoy. This is the Cole Memo. I'm your host, Cole Preston. Every episode is released in audio, video, and transcript format. To find the transcript, audio, or video version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to now. Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find this episode in audio or video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever platform you're listening from, I get it, all platforms are different. 
Simply note the episode number and visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can find the corresponding episode, and then you'll be able to access the audio, video, or transcript version of the podcast. You might also find any links that we reference during the episode uh, so that you might be able to do your own research on a company like Cresco Labs, for example. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. It's a great way to support our show, but one of the best ways to support our show is absolutely free. Subscribe to or follow our show. Leave us a positive review from wherever you're listening to us from. Favorite this episode, give it a thumbs up, leave a comment, or post a review. Your engagement and support is appreciated. In today's episode of The Cole Memo, I'm sitting down with Charlie Bactel from Cresco Labs. Charlie, welcome to The Cole Memo. Thank you, Cole. Glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, pretty crazy. We almost quite literally ran into each other in Benzinga. I don't know if you recall that moment. I like walked out of the door and almost literally ran into you. You turned around and I was like, oh, hey, Charlie. So it was really nice timing. Agreed. Yeah. So it's crescolabs.com. I wanted to mention the website at the top, it is. right? Yes, crescolabs.com. Perfect. Perfect. Well, for folks that are tuning in, I figure most of them know you. They clicked on your name or clicked on this because of your name. But in case there's anybody tuning in and doesn't know you, can you give us an introduction to who you are and maybe tell us a little bit about Cresco Labs? Yeah, sure. Uh, as, as you said, my name is Charlie Bachtel, uh, co founder, CEO of Cresco Labs. Uh, founded the organization in 2013, shortly after uh, the governor at the time signed the Compassionate Use of Medical Cannabis Act. Um, that was my uh, the trigger for me to look at the cannabis space as uh, an issue. Uh, I wouldn't even say an opportunity, uh, but, a, but an issue that was very interesting. And I quickly realized it was not only interesting, it was the most fascinating thing I'd ever looked at in my life and probably would be going forward. So it, it all sort of started in 2013. And I'm sure we'll talk about more of that as we go forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so just for context, folks, I think the Cole memo was issued in 2012, not just a reference to the show name, but it's what allows all this to go on, right? I so, mean, honestly, one of the things I love about your pod, the Cole memo is, it's a watershed moment in not only cannabis uh, reform and, and, and regulation, but it is the defining moment in my life. Uh, so the Cole memo is, is truly, it was actually 2013. It was shortly after uh, the governor of Illinois signed the Compassionate Use of Cannabis Act. When, when people ask me how uh, an attorney from the banking industry gets into cannabis, I, I always talk about sort of these three really transformative events that all happened within about 20, 25 days of me looking at this for the first time. You have Illinois really designing and authoring generation two of regulated cannabis, mm-hmm. highly regulated compliance focused, which as you learn more about my background, really spoke to me as an attorney in a highly regulated industry at the time. I, it, a lot of parallels, um, a pretty significant reason that I, I took a first look at it. So you have passing of the law here in Illinois. Within two or three weeks, the Cole memo comes out. And also mm-hmm. within that time frame, Dr. Sanjay Gupta's first documentary on weed um, in on CNN yeah. uh, was was produced and uh, and aired. So really, three 
defining moments in the evolution of cannabis happened within the first three weeks that I looked at it. I tell people like I didn't I didn't stand a chance. Like this was this was going to be something that I I needed to pursue. But yeah. the Cole memo is a very important part of my life. Yeah, and on my way here, I was listening to some interviews you've given and uh, an analogy you gave that that I thought I might have you recount so that I don't butcher it is uh, from your experience in like the financial sector and how kind of fast and loose it was for a while before the reckoning of 2008, let's call it. And the coal memo, and you kind of made an analogy. Do you know what I'm talking about? And can you maybe restate it for again, like as, as furtherance of the, how does an attorney from the banking space get into cannabis? I, I found myself entering the banking industry in particular with a, with a focus on mortgage banking in uh, Q2, Q3 of, of uh, 2007. And, and as most people remember, within, within six to nine months after me getting into the mortgage banking space, uh, the sky truly started to fall. <laughs> and, and when your industry is identified as a root cause of a global financial crisis, just get ready for things to change. You know, so regulation starts flying at you from all different angles. Um, and the parallels that I saw was, uh, you know, fast forward to 2013, I'm in the industry there for six, five, six years at the time. Cannabis to me looked like another industry that was going to go from relatively unregulated to hyper-regulated overnight on a state-by-state-by-state by state by state structure, which was the same as the the the, uh, the company that I worked for in the mortgage banking space was state chartered. So mm-hmm. Illinois was different than New York was different than Florida was different than Illinois or from California. And um, another subject matter that had this legacy of negative stigma associated with it, you know, coming out of the, the mortgage crisis, nobody wanted to do business with the mortgage banker. You had right. to figure out how to build trust, uh, to engage with that consumer base, to engage with regulators. I saw the exact same things present itself with the cannabis subject matter. So not only did I, f- I find the, the subject matter itself fascinating when I started to do the research and, and again, the, the, the Cole memo coming out and, and Sanjay Gupta's documentary airing and realizing that there really is some substantiated medical benefit to this. It wasn't just a, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, medical cannabis. It was, there was tangible proof. Um, but I saw this connectivity of, well, okay, I, I've been a part of the reform, the regulatory reform of an industry on a state by state by state structure with this subject matter that had a tremendous amount of negative stigma. I kind of know how to do this. I, I should also add our company was very successful at navigating mm-hmm. from 2008 forward. We, we've scaled uh, the company from about 200 employees to 3,500 employees over those five years by doing regulation well as a business model. Mm-hmm. The regulatory tsunami that hit banking caused the vast majority of existing players in that space to truly throw their hands up and say, I can't do this anymore. So that ethos of our company was, we can. We're, we're going to make sure we figure out how to do regulation well as a business model. Um, so we did. And that was, a, again, an opportunity that I saw present itself with, with cannabis. Yeah. And I feel like it very much informs how, so to be clear, in that context, you were talking about your company guaranteed rate, right? And how guaranteed they can navigate that. And you're making the analogy, I, I would say, and then maybe this can open this up to telling us more about Cresco Labs, like 
you is your home state Illinois? Is that correct? Born here, grew up in Arizona, came back for law school. Yeah. So I've been here now for 24 years again. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And Cresco's home state is Illinois as well, right? Cresco's home state is Illinois. Yeah. And and again, the, the big reason for it is um, credit to Illinois for being the author of Generation 2 of Cannabis, right. which was would had a had a sincere intent to figure out how to make a real industry out of this not a wink wink nudge nudge um, medical program but a true industry that focused on doing cannabis the right way making sure that it was meeting the needs of the population that could benefit from it while at the same time having enough structure around it to where maybe the naysayers or the people who were not supportive of reform and cannabis could look at it and say this, I, I understand, this is a real industry. This has rules. This has professionalism. Mm -hmm. The sky doesn't fall. And, and again, I think is a major stepping stone to getting further reform as it relates to cannabis was we had to show that cannabis could be done right in a respectable and responsible way to allow people to say, well, okay, what else can we do as it, as it relates to, to cannabis reform? Yeah. And I see generation two of cannabis as you call it being very like uh, fundamental to how Cresco does business and maybe this can springboard you into telling us if people don't already know what is Cresco Labs how would you define your success it sounds like you credit it to maybe gen two started by Illinois but wanted to give yeah. you the floor on all that so sure so again having having the the Illinois law sort of be the on-ramp mm -hmm. to our entry into the space, uh, Cresco was formed with the mission of helping to normalize and professionalize cannabis. That was not only the opportunity that I saw for cannabis, like you didn't need to do a, a demand study yeah. uh, to know if cannabis as an industry could be successful. Been mm -hmm. around for 5,000 plus years. Um, even for the last few generations, while it's been federally illegal, it has still been um, relatively acceptable in most society's oh. circles. So you didn't need to know if people would actually consume cannabis. Uh, what I saw the opportunity being was if you do it right, you could make a real industry out of this. And also that it would help to get, um, address the preconceived notions about what cannabis was and whether or not it should continue to be illegal at a federal level. So really it was that structure. It was the um, heavily regulated compliance focused approach to cannabis which I saw not only as the opportunity for cannabis to achieve more of a uh, potential, but I also saw that as, as my opportunity to help mm -hmm. cannabis achieve its potential. I had been through a very similar transformation of the banking industry, right. and I had that experience that I thought could help cannabis along its way in becoming normalized and professionalized. Right, and so Cresco, you, you know, your business model is like that you seek out those highly regulated states so that you can continue that mission of professionalizing, normalizing, everything like that. Yeah, certainly. It's it's important. Uh, I know the approach that Cresco is going to bring to any market, which is that normalized, professionalized approach to doing cannabis from that perspective is, is similar to any other industry where um, being responsible, making sure that your respected industry is critical to the success and the continuation of cannabis reform from our perspective. So that is how we built the company. Our company is built to help normalize and professionalize the industry. So we, of course, look for 
um, state laws and structures that also care about that. Um, right. You know, from my perspective, and I'm sure we'll get into it more, that one of the one of the risks to the industry um, continuing to progress would be a, a lack of a responsible approach to it, because then all you're going to do is reinforce preconceived notions about whether or not cannabis should be legal. You'll you go the other direction. Right. Right. And one of the things that I see, Keith, a few of the things you've mentioned, um, I'm a big fan of Mike Fouché. I don't know if you remember him from Grown In. Uh, he oh, was sure. an author from with Brad Spearson, and he coined the phrase, the Fouché forces of cannabis. And it was what he thought cannabis companies looked for when it came to deciding whether or not it was a good investment, right? So high high population, which is something I've heard that you you know you guys look for. You're in seven of the most highly populated states. I'm impressed with myself getting this off the top of my head right now. Um, so population plays a big role in it. Um, state regulatory environments, like you say, to play a big role in it. And one of the things I think is like fair to say is that generally speaking, you're looking for when you say highly regulated, you mean not only literally highly regulated, making sure that it's a safe product, but also I get the sense that it's like another force of the the another Fouché force. I think it's the third one is the idea of market share and how much any one entity can have of market share. Can you talk to me about or can you explain to our audience like why limited license markets are attractive investment opportunities? Sure. There, and there's a couple there's a couple reasons. And, and similarly, the way that we've uh, articulated our, our growth strategy for, for years has been the first step is appropriate regulations. Um, and uh, our definition of appropriate regulations is a sufficient amount of regulatory structure to where the businesses that operate within it mm -hmm. are going to um, be held to standards that will produce a responsible and respectable industry. So, you know, from that perspective, some sort of uh, control on number of licensees is important because what we've seen um, state after state is the state has to be able to wrap their arms around it too. Um, so from that perspective, and again, there's, there's um, from an investment perspective, there's, there's rationale for that, but also from a responsible, respectable, regulated uh, perspective, there are reasons that having a finite number of participants is very important for states. You know, everybody has to remember, um, this is a matter of first impression for everybody. You know, every state that comes online in what, whatever form, whether it's their medical law or going from medical to adult use, very rarely, if ever, is there anybody in that state um, administration that has experience with launching a cannabis industry. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a matter of first impression for everybody, for law enforcement, right? We, we talk about uh, from the early days of Cresco forming a stakeholder focused organization. And we were very broad in, in our acknowledgement of who's a stakeholder in cannabis. Everybody, right? It is the local community. It is the school board of the nearest school to where a facility will be built and operated. It is law enforcement. It is the legislators and regulators that stuck their neck out to pass this law, right? So there's a lot of stakeholders who are sitting at the table that have a lot of risk and potential opportunity to get cannabis right. Mm -hmm. and, and as we've approached 
all of our, whether it's strategic development or operational strategies, we you know, know your audience is a core is a core value of our company. Um, you need to understand all of those stakeholders that are going to be impacted with how cannabis is done. Mm -hmm. And you need to understand what their needs are, what they need to get from cannabis, whether it's it, again, it, it runs the, the, the gamut um, because it is a broad stakeholder base. Um, so for us, appropriate regulations kind of encompass all of that. It needs to have a sufficient amount of structure not to stifle uh, competition or development or the ability to be successful. So it has to be, they have to be broad enough and encouraging enough to allow for a viable market to, to develop and to exist, but they need to be um, focused enough to make sure that a responsible and respectable industry develops in their state. Otherwise, again, the, the public perception and willingness to take cannabis further goes the other direction. And I would say a good example of that uh, would be Oklahoma. Um, I think Oklahoma took a fairly um, almost libertarian approach to cannabis. And, and I could tell you the, the, it's another reason why Oklahoma then when adult use, that's that in their medical uh, law and program, mm -hmm. when the adult use question came up, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, um, it was a resounding no. And that's, we don't want to see that. We want to continue to see cannabis make progress from a reform standpoint, but appropriate incrementalism um, from our perspective is how cannabis continues to achieve positive gains and as opposed to reinforcing preconceived notions that take us back the other direction. So long story short, appropriate regulations is, is sort of a requirement number one for a state for us. And then we do like to match that up with um, big populations sure. that can support a robust industry. From our perspective, you know, um, not to single out any states, but if you, if you get cannabis right in a very, very small state, um, it's almost the question of if a, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to hear it, does it make a noise, right? So um, we, we like to, to, again, we're trying to create a normalized and professionalized industry. We want to be in states that have sufficient population to have a robust market. We think not only is that good for the economics of being in that state, but that's how you get additional uh, progress at a, at a reform level for cannabis. Yeah. Yeah, totally get that. And, you know, safety and kind of public opinion aside, another reason that I've heard operators kind of support this idea of limiting licenses is the idea to prevent price compression. Do you see that at all as a like a, a reason that you invest in those markets? Or? It is. I would say, you know, there's the there's the respectable and responsible sort of requirements or, or the goals to try and achieve, which I think regulations help for. And then if you look at it from a purely economic basis, um, having some structure yeah. uh, does allow you to create more uh, forecastable and foreseeable events to occur. And again, I, I think it, it, it's really important, especially when the market launches. And then as time goes on, like we were big supporters of broadening the licensee base in Illinois. After we did the medical, we realized um, medical was successful. We showed the population in Illinois and again, those stakeholders that have big concerns over uh, cannabis reform, we showed them that the sky didn't fall. So that allowed them to say, well, okay, maybe we can broaden this. And the adult use question got brought up, which then raised other questions about, well, this industry isn't very diverse. 
And so if we're going to broaden this and you've got this very unique and interesting dynamic with the subject matter of cannabis and um, disparate impacts on communities over the generations in cannabis being illegal, that then also needed to be addressed. So we're, we're, we're absolutely at the forefront and, and really try to provide thought leadership on how cannabis can just continue to um, progress. And so in, in doing so, as you think about what that next gen of a, a cannabis program is, things like limited licenses need to be addressed also. More people need to be able to come into this industry. This industry has the opportunity to achieve more things than just creating a, um, a economically viable product. They also have the ability, this industry is a unique opportunity to create social benefit. And yeah. so that needs to be a part of its development too. So we, we try to be balanced. If I was going to boil all of this down, I would say balance is a big part of the way that we think about progress for cannabis. It has to have a balanced kind of incremental approach, which also makes cannabis that responsible, respectable equals robust. That's kind of an equation we talk about internally all the time. Yeah. Responsible plus respectable equals robust. That's how we'd like to see programs develop. Yeah. And the reason I ask about price compression, it's something that, that uh, like I say, many operators have brought up. Even our governor, J.B. Pritzker, brought up at Ivy Hall when he got a question. He said, you know, I know some people write or talk about in the media that maybe we should have just opened up the licenses. Now, what I mean to say is I know that there are people who write about this, that there are other states that have opened up the number of licenses to hundreds and hundreds of licensees, uh, and they have more dispensaries open than we do. He said something to the effect of the truth is we've limited the number of licenses so that the social equity candidates don't get edged out until the very end. But the reality is that we've limited the number of licensees in part because we wanted to make sure that the social equity licensees had a fair shot in the industry and they weren't just edged out to the very end uh, and by you know having too many dispensaries in the market so that people can't make money. Which is something we've seen in other happen in other states, you know what I mean? Like you say, Oklahoma, Oregon, I've even interviewed the, uh, he was the uh, head regulator at OLCC. I don't believe he is anymore. Uh, Steve Marks, and he spoke about exactly this. You know, they issued so many licenses, and a lot of people went out of business. One of the things, though, that I did ask him, and it wasn't the first time he's been asked this question. I saw Vice ask him the question, but I wanted to ask him it a few years later. You know, was do you regret that approach? And he was honest with me that he's like, well, I'm the regulator, so like I didn't create this approach i'm just right. appointed with regulating it but if you're asking me my personal opinion he said i don't think we should have or i would have done it differently because while all those things did happen and i don't wish financial hardship on anybody at least people knew what they were getting into and had the chance to do that you know what i mean and to just make a comparison to another industry like we seem to accept the fact that 80% of restaurants go out of business within the first five years. And I get the regulatory points that you just brought up, but yeah, it is interesting to me sometimes to hear price compression or people going out of business being used as a talking point for limited licenses. It's like, I totally understand the rationale, you know, keeping prices consistent so that it's, 
easier on operators. But I guess just to close my thought here, and I'm curious what you think, I've boiled it down to this. It's like, I feel like the only people that are complaining about open markets like that are people that have to compete in open markets. And the people that aren't complaining are cannabis consumers that are getting their cannabis at a cheap and affordable price. So uh, love the discussion. And I think we could spend mm -hmm. hours on it. And, yeah. and again, I think this is a this is a great point of why I still think just as I did in 2013, that cannabis is the most fascinating thing that I've ever seen and yeah. probably will be for the rest of my life. Like the, the whole the whole free market discussion is a, another fascinating sort of thread to pull on in this. And the only thing I would I would add to it is <clears throat> what what we have to acknowledge is all of the facets of cannabis the fact that we are currently federally illegal. Right. So it's not like we're talking about, there's, there's uniqueness to this discussion and debate, especially as it relates to free market and the way to do this right. Mm -hmm. So if we go back to the, the foundation of, of kind of who I am and, and what I started Cresco to be, which is uh, an advocate that helps to normalize and professionalize the industry. And as I just was talking about too, this equation that we talk about all the time internally is, responsibly plus respectable equals robust. So if I'm thinking about how to create the best outcome for cannabis possible over time, there ha if a free market approach to it from a starting from a point of federal illegality to me is, is tough to see how that will result in the uh, best outcome for cannabis going forward. Mm -hmm. I personally think that a, um, uh, a total free market approach to it will ensure that you don't see more progress at a legal level federally or in states that don't have it now for them to progress with reform as it relates to cannabis. And yeah. if I think about the downside risk to what that means, mm -hmm. if I think about the criminal justice impact that we've seen for generations, that outcome is a is a is a bad scenario for cannabis right so I, I think there needs to be like with several you know a, a lot of uh, industries especially ones that have um, uh, intoxication as a component to it um, even if they're not starting from a point of federal illegality uh, there needs to be some structure there needs to be some rules around it there needs to be some control um, who is it Friedman that says even even free market needs a a, a coach or a trainer it's there is a uh, i'm getting the quote butchering the quote. i know your reference right yeah. but even a free market needs some help in assisting it along to make sure that it could be as successful as possible and that's how i feel about it so but that that conversation and that debate is absolutely viable and should continue to happen as states and the federal government continue to think about this there's a, there's a reason why would we have 40 states now that have some form of really truly real viable medical or adult use law yeah and every single one of them is different than the other um some are very similar but they're all none of them are exactly the same because there are these different perspectives on how to pull on these levers mm -hmm. and and get it right to create the best outcome for cannabis in that state um but yeah like i, I know the answer is not having uh two licensees in an entire state that own the whole market <laughs> right. in the same way that I know the right answer also is not free for all, no limits, no rules, go for it. 
I know neither one of those is the right answer. I think the right answer is somewhere in that middle 80%. The 10% on the extremes on both sides, I feel, are not the right answers. The right answer is somewhere in that 80% middle. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for getting into that. And I'll just close with saying, because some people will ask me, because I talk about this particular subject a lot. Um, some people have asked me, do you talk about limited licenses a lot because you're upset that you couldn't get into the market? And I was like, no, no, actually it has to do with from the people I've interviewed. And, and that's what I've, I just want to be clear. Other people do complain about limited license Certainly. markets because like they couldn't get their ticket in and such, which I, I think we could both probably, you know, uh, have some empathy for because it's like that sucks. Well, and in the same respect as people who argue for it, maybe people who only see success with regulatory moats to compete in. Yeah. Um, so, again, I think those are the, you're going to have those perspectives on both ends of the extreme. And that's actually what I was going to talk about. I don't know what some people mean when they reference regulatory moat, but what I hear and what I've spoken to with like uh, attorneys and such it's like the idea that at least in Illinois, and it seems to be pretty consistent across all states, the enforcement mechanism for these systems aren't similar to, and I'm a layman, I've not been in many different sectors, so if you know more about this, what I'm about to say than me, feel free to jump in on this, but like, just to bring up restaurants again, or even like a liquor store, if I was doing that without a license, I might be hit with a business fine, and maybe they'd be pretty serious, you know, because depending, it's almost like, a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, relative to the harm it could cause to a community. So yeah, there's a public safety element. Right, right. So we have to take that into effect. But the main thing that I'm thinking of that I just find troubling with any of these systems so far, it just seems that the criminal law is still the answer if you don't have a license. Like it's not just a business infraction. It's the criminal justice system. Um, and like I say, I've talked to several attorneys about that one, actually, that was going to be at the Cresco Labs Training Center, uh, attorney Bob Gal Galholtra. Okay. And um, I'm just curious what you think of, of that. Do you think that because it just seems that especially in Illinois, if we've said that the war on drugs was an issue and we have these social equity provisions that are meant to almost not reconcile, but address what's happened we're like acknowledging this cycle, but we're continuing it in our enforcement, I feel like. What do you think about that idea? I, I think you're, you're totally right, it, which again takes me back to that point of the free market discussion. When you're starting from a point of mm -hmm. being illegal, yeah, that has to come into um, the conversation on how you think you can uh, create the best outcome uh, possible for cannabis, which mm -hmm. is a reason that you have to you have to have some guidelines, you have to have some some boundaries, you have to have some rules to get change from your from the current point that you're starting from. Mm -hmm. So even if it's incremental and it's it's um, can still create the scenario where there can be bad outcomes, where there can still be enforcement when there's a legal structure for it. It is the pathway to making that that change that we all want to get to, which is a more normalized, again, responsible, respectable, robust mm -hmm. industry. Um, but I, I do believe that that is cannabis. I, I think is always going to be a regulated industry. I don't I don't envision a scenario because to your point, 
even restaurants uh, have regulatory requirements. There are public health and safety obligations that come with being yeah. a, a, an owner uh, of a restaurant or, or preparing food for individuals. Um, I think when you when you add the intoxicating component of cannabis, now you are in the realm of whether it's alcohol or or, or other sort of um, you know pharmaceuticals over the counter or otherwise, you're you're in the more regulated than less regulated nature, and that's always going to come with structure. That's always going to come with obligations mm -hmm. and hurdles and and um, uh, whether it's licensing or otherwise, there's going to be requirements in order to participate in the space. And, yeah. and therefore, there needs to be some enforcement of that requirement. But getting it right is, there's no perfect answer right now for sure. And the opportunity, the obligation that all of us have is to just keep making sure that cannabis progresses on this responsible and respectable path to get as close to a robust and an equitable industry as we can. Yeah. And I think that, that you may have similar thoughts on this topic, but so setting like kind of business aside, there are also other regulations that I actually think I watched J.B. Pritzker's first speech, like where he was saying, I'm going to sign this bill like it's it's going to be great and was kind of explaining it all. Uh, Senators Cassidy and Stain, a representative Cassidy mm -hmm. and Senator Stain, Stain's uh, gave comments on the matter. And one of the things he mentioned was uh, safety. Safety was also a critical dimension that needed to be addressed for Illinois families. As a parent myself, I had to know that all Illinois children would be safe if we moved forward with this. We brought together medical experts and stakeholders like Lurie Children's Hospital and Illinois Public Health Institutes to develop regulations that protect the health of our children and our families. Adult use cannabis will only include those 21 and over. The program also includes regulation on potency and possession limits. Like the idea that possession limits for public safety. And I'm just curious, like, like liquor stores, the only thing that's stopping me from buying out the store is like what's in my bank account mm -hmm. <laughs> or my credit card limit, or maybe even what I can haul away in that trip. Like, can I fit it all in my vehicle? Like that's the only requirement. And uh, when I go to one of your stores, I can only buy like a, a certain amount I'm just curious as a company, like I know, again, you'll probably say something to the effect of like, well, we need to be careful about this, you know, so I, I kind of like get that perspective, but also like, I don't mean to say that you're trying to sell as much weed as you can, but let's be real, like you're trying to sell and I mean, that's the business, right? So what do you think about possession limits? And really what I'm asking is like at the face of possession limits, which I think I might know how you feel about it. But then it's also interesting, you exceed that possession limit. And here again, criminal law comes yeah. back into the effect. It's the, um, it's the, the benefit and the downside of incrementalism, uh, right? It, in furtherance of where we're starting from and where we're trying to get to, the, I would say the, the main priorities at any state um, is trying to achieve when they're coming up with the laws and the rules and regulations to comply with, they're trying to address the fears or the preconceived notions of people who, who don't think anything should change, right? So public safety and public health are historically are the top two things. Uh, I would say with um, more recent states addressing adult use, 
Now the third thing in there is social responsibility in addressing disparate impact of the application of prior drug laws, right? So that's kind of that third top priority. That, mm -hmm. So if you look at it from the perspective of those three main priorities that a state is trying to address to show that this can be done the right way, you end up with some limitations, you end up with obligations, and you end up with limitations because they need to, they need to show that the structure um, addresses the concerns of the anti-reformists and the Cole memo, right? And again, the, 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 the again, I lo love the name um, because you could argue that uh, if he like, tried to put up a structure, right? Yeah, he, he identified here's what we care about at the DOJ. Yes, these eight things, very reasonable. Mm -hmm. um, and if a state can design a regulatory structure that addresses our eight priorities. We've got bigger and better things to do. Which in the context of this question, one of his main eight things is preventing interstate trafficking. And maybe you could argue that if, if I come from another state and just can purchase untold quantities, that then that's like a direct violation of the Cole memo. Because you know what I mean? Like, well, and What I would say is I, I think there's, there's more evidence of that being the case than the alternative, which is I should be able to... Uh, have for my personal consumption as much as I want, right? My limit should only be be sort of set by the amount of money I have in my bank account. Mm -hmm. And in the early states, you absolutely saw that type of opportunity. I think in Colorado, in particular, where the the possession limits or the amount that you could buy um, was on a per visit um, perspective. So you had people just kind of walking in, walking back to their car, yeah, putting looping. the bag in the car, come, yeah, looping, <laughs> and a lot of that resulted in product. Um, being resold from that point forward. So again, just uh, un until we've shown that that responsible and respectable approach addresses the concerns of the anti-reformists sufficiently, where there's a balance, um, you're gonna continue to see an effort to provide that type of structure that could be seen as responsible and respectable. Yeah. Well, to switch gears a little bit here, uh, I, as I said on my way up here, I was listening to some of uh, older interviews you've done, and one interview I watched, you uh, were talking about the recent passage of the Farm Bill, and I saw you had made some comments about the Farm Bill again recently at Benzinga, but I found it interesting. One of the things you said was something to the effect of, you know, this Farm Bill, it allows for CBD, because that's all that was happening at the time. That's how old that interview was that I was watching. Um and you were mentioning, though, that it, it might be a good opportunity for Cresco to get into non-legal states or even uh, storefronts that you traditionally wouldn't find a cannabis-based product because this is what the Farm Bill allows for. In other words, CVS, yeah. Walgreens, something like that. And you were talking about how it's not only a good opportunity to get more people, more consumers exposed to it, but also a great opportunity to get the brand out. Mm -hmm. Let's shift gears a little bit to the Farm Bill and the States Act. So I guess you got listed in around the same time that the Farm Bill um, came through in December. How is that? How has that affected you? How will it affect you? How will it affect your, your plans going forward? And then we can talk a little bit about the States Act. Uh, so I'll take the Farm Bill. Um, you know, as as it relates to the core business of Cresco Labs, really didn't uh, it doesn't touch on it, right? It's right. it's dealing with hemp derived CBD, which um, for the most part we're licensed and we operate in the in the um, state regulated THC cannabis markets. That said, um, what this is sort of 
changing landscape in that CBD, specifically with regard to hemp derived CBD, has created for us as an opportunity to um, reach a consumer base mm -hmm. that either doesn't live in a state that has a legal cannabis program yet or isn't comfortable with the idea of THC as a cannabinoid-based product, but is willing to try CBD as a first cannabinoid-based product for them, or if they're still that you know comfortable there, even if they do live in states that have um, licensed dispensaries, maybe they don't want to go into a dispensary, um, they'd like to try something that's available in CVS, Walgreens, and Whole Foods. Right. So then we started looking at it again from the perspective of a very, um, brand-focused uh, organization and consumer products-focused organization and realized that this opportunity not only to create a, a CBD-based uh, brand called Wellbeings is the brand that we're creating, um, but to also bring our portfolio, our house of brands um, that are appropriate, like a Cresco, like a Remedy, and like Mindy's, and do hemp-derived CBD versions of them. And now we can get our house of brands, the majority of the brands in our house, we can get them in front of those consumers today as opposed to mm -hmm. when their laws change or when Cresco actually becomes an operator in those states. We can get that mind share today, which is pretty incredible. If you consider, you know, I think Cowan estimates this is going to be an $80 billion industry by 2030. Right. I think we're about a 12, 11 or $12 billion industry now. That next $68 billion worth of consumer um, that's not from current customers consuming no. more. That's from a new consumer base coming in. And this gives us a nice cross-channel opportunity to introduce ourselves to them today. I recently read a tweet, and I want to find it really quick. Uh, I think I have it pretty close here. And I'm just curious what you think about this idea. This is just much better said than what I can say uh, off the top of my head. A person said, just talk to a bank that will take deposits from and provide funding for farm bill authorized businesses including THC hemp. Between that, the farm bill extension and state prohibitions on hemp being decimated in court, the hemp space is almost irresistible. Is it irresistible to you? And, and I ask this knowing that uh, Cookies, a very well-known brand, is just leaning right into it and getting their brand on shelves in states that you can't. Yeah. Um, is, that is that an attractive idea? So... It Unfortunately, my answer to that would be it depends, right? <laughs> so it, it's, a, it's a very real um, conversation that I think is, is really heated up here in the last six to nine months. Mm -hmm. um, if you go back to why I got into the industry and the, the opportunity that I see from it, right, to, to finally create um, legislative and regulatory reform, that is seen as progress for cannabis to help normalize and professionalize cannabis, mm -hmm. which has been, again, illegal for generations and created um, disastrous outcomes uh, for a lot of people and communities because of its illegality. It, 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 it not only forces me, but that's why I lean into responsible equals respectable equals robust. I see that as the way of creating progress, not only for the economic opportunities that lie within this industry, but for the reform opportunities that, that can be created through the industry done right. That the farm bill um, as drafted and kind of as being um, applied right now, this, you, need an, you need an answer. We, we need clarification on whether or not um, the opportunity to create intoxicating products from hemp 
is going to continue to be seen by some because it's not by all that's you know you you have this distinction right. some states say no some some parts of you you have the legislative branches saying technically by the language here i'm seeing the point of whether you claim it's poorly drafted or that wasn't the intent that's what the language says right on the other side of that you have the dea saying we still consider it a schedule one we still consider it federally illegal yet mm -hmm. the fda coming out recently and reaffirming so now you've got federal agencies disagreeing with courts that is not what I think progress for cannabis looks like, <laughs> yeah. right? So I would say yes, though, if I was going to give a short answer to that, if, if the um, perceived loophole or, or opportunity that's created by the current version of the farm bill is not changed, I would say then it's possible that um, the federal government may have inadvertently legalized intoxicating products derived from the cannabis sativa plant. And I could tell you, they absolutely did not think they were doing that. Right. That's my concern with it, right? That's why I, 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 it's an ongoing conversation internally of whether or not that's an opportunity for us is I just want clarity on it. Um, mm -hmm. But if in fact that is you're able to produce intoxicating products from what is technically a hemp plant, uh, then I do think I think it challenges um, existing cannabis state laws and programs that have been put in place because you could have the same product being sold across the street at an unlicensed, unregulated, traditional retail storefront. Mm -hmm. um, this industry would not be able to compete with that, uh, full stop. You, you can't have uh, an industry that has to comply with licensing requirements, the cost of licensing, the cost of regulatory compliance, add on top of that X percent excise tax, add on top of that, that we're deemed federally illegal from uh, the federal government's perspective uh, as a schedule one that puts 280E, uh, IRC 280E on top of us. You can't have, that industry can't possibly compete um, with an identical product, truly identical, being sold at a store that doesn't have to pay for a state license, doesn't have to comply with state regulatory structures and the cost of those doesn't have to pay that excise tax has a can bank. take credit cards yeah can raise capital can go public on u.s exchanges doesn't have 280e can file uh copyrights and stuff to, absolutely yeah. so one way or another these two things have to be reconciled so it might be uh an incredible opportunity that can't be ignored or that could change and things shift back over to here my desire from all of it is to uh, get clarity yeah and again have this this subject matter as a whole whether that is right or wrong with that language and the interpretation of the language and that opportunity that creates my desire would still be though then okay whatever it is that if you if you if your business is in that realm you have to you have to accept and incorporate the obligation to be responsible and respectable. Because if you're not, then all you're gonna do is, is make the naysayers right, um, entrench them in their position, and stifle the opportunity to get the reform that all of us want for cannabis. Right, right. So it sounds like you're basically saying if the if it was a little bit more of a firm foundation under that, not so much of it, because like you say, I've seen those things from the DEA and the FDA, and the, it's 
I mean, like you say, yeah, the language of the law seems very clear, but when you have other people with some pretty big authority saying, we don't see it that way, it's like, mm-hmm. do I want to step on that lily pad? Is yeah. There, you know? well, and, the, and the issue is you, the people who are saying it, we don't see it that way in that legislative branch, their sole job is to interpret that language, right? And in, in sort of enforce what that language says, not to try and understand or incorporate intent. Um, and when those two things are at odds, that is a lily pad that you don't want to step on because you could just see that you could see a change coming and you don't want to, you don't want to be subject to it. Otis, again, I, I reiterate though, the responsible and respectable part of that is really important to, to me because uh, if not done in a responsible and respectable way, you you significantly um, limit the amount of reform that we will then get um, at a federal or further state level. Yeah. And uh, I just saw a tweet this morning from um, Kevin Sabet. Are you familiar with Kevin Sabet? Sure. So Kevin and I, Kevin has had a, a few of his people a few people from his team on my show, actually just one person several times. He's actually about my age, so it's kind of funny. I recently went to Washington, D.C. to uh, meet him. I wanted to, since we've talked about some naysayers and everything, I wanted to talk about something that he tweeted this morning and see if you had any thoughts on it, just because it's a quote that President Obama made, and it he's using it, it seems, to talk about companies like yours, and I'd, I'd be interesting to, interested to hear uh, your thoughts on that. Uh, but I just thought, to close out since I just bring up my podcast. She said that you definitely are, but I was just curious when I met you, are you at, were you actually familiar with the Chillinois podcast or were you just being nice? No, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, how did you, how did you hear about it? And this is just me patting myself on the back. Cause I was like, was he just being nice to me or did he actually know about my show? So no, I, I think you've got, uh, you've got a big listener base. And I think the name also is a very, both of your names, now, <laughs> the former name and the new name are very, very, uh, memorable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, you're, you've, you've established yourself. Well, awesome. That, that was just for me. Sorry, yeah. folks. Um, well in the spirit, uh, just before I go to, uh, critics and everything else, one of the things that I've said on my show for the longest time is that people within the cannabis industry, like companies like yours and others that I won't name, I view them as, and I think in many ways the discussions we've had today show that you are, but I, I think that companies like these should be at the front of the uh, line for advancing, which is like what you've been talking about this whole time. You're talking about being very mindful of how you move forward because you don't want past perceived notions to like kind of take hold and derail this train. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I'm curious, do you view things like the continued decriminalization of cannabis or specifically things like home grow is something that Cresco will ever explicitly support? And I say that knowing that I think I saw a tweet that Cresco made a few years ago where they did support, uh, by via tweet, uh, a home grow initiative like hey we support this initiative we have yeah. no problem with it but i'm just curious sort of litmus testing you here oh yeah no explicitly um, we support home grow but i guess what i'm asking is i i've been trying to make the pitch to people in the future you know i don't know what legislative changes you might push for in the future maybe it'll be things like the the hemp the hemp uh conversation that we've had i know a lot of people are pushing for a conversation like that um but one thing that i've always found in cannabis especially after states legalize is that people just come apathetic to the idea of continued progress 
and Norway is a great example of that. Um, or Amsterdam, uh, mm. you know, you can get cannabis and cannabis shops. It's been a gimmick for years. It was part of a Harold and Kumar movie, right? Mm -hmm. Most people in Norway, uh, in Amsterdam, I don't know why I keep saying that. Um, I'm honestly not very good on geography either, so I'm not going to sit here and act like it. But anyways, uh, they view the issue of cannabis legalization as kind of over because yeah. you can just get it at coffee shops. And I'm just curious, like, to kind of round out my question, I felt like a way that companies like yours could get some, like, big time support from the community is pairing something you want with something that the community wants. So it's like, then, then they have a reason to call their representatives and be like, yeah, let's get okay, these cannabis companies, this thing. And, and also there's a really good consumer component that gives us home grow. I don't know if you've just ever considered that. Uh, and I've just been trying to plant that seed in every cannabis company that I talk to pun intended yeah. uh, to like kind of pair their proposals with something that's consumer driven. Like how else are you going to get the energy? You know? hundred percent. So uh, kind of looking at those potentially two different things, I would say are two complementary ways. Yeah. I think we're, you're always seeing an attempt to package um, cannabis reform with benefits that come from it outside of the industry, right? That's it's usually impetus of a excise tax, right? Is then the excise tax can be used for this, right? And in Illinois, you see a big part of the excise tax goes to communities most disparately impacted by the war on drugs, right? So there's these social components and other, other states have focused more on uh, school funding or, or, or uh, substance abuse programs. So there's always uh, um, that broader stakeholder focus mm -hmm. to show it's not just legalizing weed for sale. It is creating a socially responsible approach to creating a new industry and, and at the same time, uh, cannabis reform. Home grow uh, is is for sure a part of that, and I, I think um, for one reason or another, it's not it's not um, uh, I, I don't see lack of reason behind it. There's been a perception that like the companies that are involved in the industry are anti home grow, mm -hmm. seen as competition. I, I, I'm I don't know of any company in the industry who's actually against home grow for competitive reasons. Um, you can make your own beer at home. Uh, you can grow your own tomatoes at home. Uh, you can do all, you know, it's, I think the, the concern or the, again, the, the thing to just consider as that conversation happens is everything that I've said so far about being rooted in responsible and respectable equals yeah. where we want to get to, um, that you have to address the concerns that the naysayers currently have. And so, um, sort of an unfettered opportunity to grow outside of the regulated structure where things don't have to be track and traced and don't have to be sold through license. That's the concern that anybody, I think from my perspective or others would have about home grow is it just can't challenge or jeopardize the feeling that this structure of cannabis in that state is responsible and respectable. Yeah. Um, so that I think the concern just comes from the kind of commercialization opportunity that could arise if home grow developed into that size or scale. That's where concern happens. So it's not about being able to grow at home. It's not about the competitive nature with the industry. It's as if the approach to home grow would jeopardize the program or the reform to be seen as responsible or respectable. That's where that 
conversation then really needs to focus is where's that limit. Yeah. And does, I'm curious, does that get old? Cause that's the, that's the one thing I always see. And I've even, it's been said on my show before, um, people will say the big companies, they don't want home yeah. grow. I'm just curious, candidly, like, do you ever see that? And you're just like, Jesus, you know, are you just like, whatever? As I said, it's not, uh, I, I understand it. I understand how it could be perceived that way, but it's, mm-hmm. again, I don't, I don't know anybody who is concerned about home grow for competitive purposes. Yeah. Yeah, and just on that note, to, to close out that topic, I view home grow as something that could be viewed as an asset by some of your companies. It's uh, by not having home grow, uh, your talent pool has been decreased. Yeah, and, it, and just the general, like, it, if, it, if, um, if it falls under the umbrella of responsible and respectable, I think then it also achieves the goal of normalizing yeah. the subject matter. Right. So that's why I'm, I'm in favor of it as long as it doesn't, um, across a tipping point where it is seen as irresponsible um, and then jeopardizes the ability of cannabis to continue to progress with reform. Yeah. To your point, I showed my grandma one of my cannabis plants and it was something for her to like see it in its natural form and not just, it, you know, it rolled in a joint or right. ground up. She's, oh, this is just a plant. I mean, it like, helps to normalize it. Yeah. Yeah. So Agreed. anyways, um, you know, I promise Charlie didn't provide this to me, but Cresco Liquid Live Resin is uh, one of my favorite vape pens. Nice. And I'm just curious. Uh, I think we kind of already addressed this earlier, and then I'll actually close out the show with that tweet I wanted to read to you. Um, I really bite the bullet when I buy these things in Illinois, but if I've ever been in Michigan, they're like 30 bucks a pop. Is that just a result of like the differences in markets or like what's... You know what I mean? Some people see that here in Illinois. They'll look at a menu of a dispensary up in Michigan and they'll be like, Jesus Christ, this high supply product that's here for this price, it's yeah. this for that in this state, you know? Yeah, it is it is a byproduct of um, the state-by-state nature of the industry. And like, as we talked about already, like n- no structure is identical as another structure. And and look, you could see in, in a state like Michigan, this is where you get into that that middle 80% discussion on how to do this the right way. As I said, like I, I don't think either, uh, either extreme to the 10% on either side is the right way to do it. Somewhere in that middle 80 is, is where you have to pull on the levers to create the right type of program that that state wants. Um, there is pricing in Michigan is significantly lower than it is in a state like Illinois because the regulatory requirements are significantly less in, in Michigan. There's also a lot more competitors. So there is that natural traditional supply and demand economic discussion that happens there. But I would also say that there's, um, there, there, the other side of that coin is also there's less control um, in Michigan. There is more of a perception that there is a gray market and a regulated market coexisting with each other. I think you'll find less support from naysayers who look at that Michigan model and say, yeah, I'm comfortable with that, as opposed to looking at a regulatory structure like Illinois saying, yeah, I'm comfortable with that, right? So all all of these things kind of interplay with each other. And since product cannot cross state lines, that's why you're going to see pricing differences on one side of a state line than the other if they actually abut with each other um, because the the regulatory structure of each state is going to impact the pricing structure of the products yeah let alone the tax rates the that's the other thing the excise tax rates on top of just cost of production 
um, make meaningful impacts. Yeah. And I want to strongly reiterate, break the third wall. I'm looking right at the camera. Uh, what Charlie just said, like the state line thing and federal uh, bringing it between states, that's a big no-no. So folks don't do that. I have to ask that really quick. You are aware a lot of people go to Michigan uh, for their cannabis. And frankly, a lot of people still buy Cresco when they go there. Let's just set the law aside. And obviously we're giving it our only legal advice would be folks don't do that because that's in direct violation of the coal memo and state law as well. Sure. But I'm just curious because I think you even acknowledged this in Benzinga. Like, is that something that you guys have conversations about? Like, ah, crap, all these people are going to Michigan because it's a bit like it's a big trend of people going there for affordable cannabis. The, I would say the way that we talk about it is um, from a state to state competitive dynamic because you take Michigan out of the equation, Missouri, yeah. right? Where you do share a state boundary line. Mm -hmm. One, you know, you could, you could have a scenario where a hundred yards away from each other, you got a, a store on one side of the one state and a store in the other state. And, and if a state structure creates such a distinction, again, balancing this is the puzzle to solve. It's, there's no perfect answer to this. But when you have a scenario where um, taxes are so significantly less in one state than another, where you are going to create this this weird dynamic between very similar products or identical products produced by the same company, but sold on on in different regulatory structures on either side of the state line, that's a dynamic that the states need to think about and they need to address. And again, the comfort level, you have to layer on so many extra components other than just purely economic. Um, you have to, where's the comfort level in uh, regulatory oversight? I don't know that Illinois is going to be willing to reduce or should it? I, I'm not weighing even in, I'm not even weighing in on what Illinois should or shouldn't do from a regulatory and rule-based compliance standpoint, because this is what got legislators in Illinois comfortable with passing the law was X types of security uh, and surveillance obligations and why types of uh, track and trace systems to make sure that we weren't um, diverting product because that from their perspective, that was what was needed to create responsible and respectable. Um, but the simple things like tax rates are things that the states absolutely have to have to face. If you've got a 10% tax on one side of the border and a 35% tax on the other side of the border, just know you're going to have people crossing state lines to buy very similar products from companies. Yeah. Um, but the state has to address that. And when you just said that, I didn't realize that this is not a new issue. I've heard of people going from like in going to Indiana to get cigarettes totally. or like Wisconsin to Illinois. Yeah. I mean, where do you buy your fireworks? <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, well, hey, to close, I wanted to ask you about this quote uh, from Kevin Sabet, but I also want to give full context because he is a tendency to not do that um candidly uh president barack obama said in an interview in 2014 that it's up to congress to remove uh cannabis from the federal government's list of most serious narcotics implying but not explicitly saying that he might support such a move um he said i stand by my belief based i think on the scientific evidence that marijuana for casual users individual users is subject to abuse just like alcohol is and should be treated as a public health problem and challenge. Um, 
as I said in my interview, my concern is when you have end up having heavy criminal penalties for individual users that have been applied unevenly and in some cases with a racial disparity. So that's his concern. Now, the quote that Kevin shared a little bit out of context, I felt like that part was really important for context because it's establishing that uh, it seemingly, as the article said, Barack Obama was supportive of it. Setting that aside, this is the quote that was shared. Um, I do offer a cautionary note. Those who think legalization is a panacea, I think they have to ask themselves some tough questions too, because if we start having a situation where big corporations with a lot of resources and distribution and marketing arms are suddenly going out there peddling marijuana, then the levels of abuse that may take place are going to be higher. Sorry for my animatedness in, in reading that quote, but uh, I'm just, I want you to take that on. How do you uh, respond to a concern like that? I think, um, I think it really does put a bow on everything that we've talked about so far. Yeah. Right. There, there's, there are so many components um, and questions that have to be asked in the way that you, you deal with cannabis reform. Um, there are so many stakeholders that are sitting at this table that are going to be impacted by these decisions or indecisions. Right? We can't for, we can't forget about the legacy that we have here over the last few generations and the impact of the criminality of cannabis. But you also have to look at the decriminality of cannabis and and trying to figure out how to do that, not necessarily right. And maybe I say to do cannabis right. Um, maybe I shouldn't say that. Um, do cannabis better? I don't know that there's a, 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 a correct answer to how to do it right. Mm -hmm. There are definitely ways that we can do it better than we currently do it. And, and I, I continue to see the North Stars as responsible and respectable being what we're trying to achieve. And that in and of itself creates that robust industry. But that's, that's where rules and regulations come into play. Yeah. You can lean into them too hard or you can not lean into them hard enough. And, and both of those scenarios will have repercussions. Uh, so I, I just look forward to being part of the, the discussion. I think that's what I'm, um, I'm happiest uh, about with what Cresco has been able to achieve over the last 10 years. I mean, we're 10 years deep in this now, which is we have created a seat at the table um, and with our mission of normalizing and professionalizing, it continues to be what we're trying to achieve i think uh, you're 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 right like context is really important to that quote and i think that is sometimes unfortunately um fairly almost partisan ish perspectives on this issue tend to cherry pick or um not have context included in the data points or the perspectives yeah. that they share uh, but it's a it's not an easy uh amount of questions there's so many that have to be answered i just like being part of the discussion helping to share what we've learned operating in 10 states um things that we've seen states get right things that we've seen states get wrong yeah let's not forget everybody like when the way that illinois was able to pass that compassionate use act back in the day um that regulated nature of it is what sparked my interest uh otherwise i wouldn't have gotten into the industry um I didn't get into the industry to sell weed. I got into the industry to help develop a normalized, professionalized, responsible, robust industry. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but there's there's ways to to do that right and to do that wrong. Figuring yeah. out that middle eighty percent is the key, and I love that we're part of that discussion. 
Yeah. And just more specifically, this is my last question. I feel like what he was directly implying and what they've said on my show, I like having people on that I might disagree with because, frankly, I come out of the conversation usually believing stronger in in what I believe in. Or maybe I have my mind changed about certain things. I don't know. That's the value I find in those conversations. What he didn't say here and what I think he's saying and what they've said in the past is that, that cannabis companies like Cresco, I don't know if they've ever named you, but cannabis companies are are just addiction for profit that's that's really what i was looking for your your response on i mean do you do you think that's fair do you think that's a little well, I, I, I think it's like you could say that about um that might just be a, a comment on corporations in general um, yeah. and you're applying it to this industry or he's applying it to this industry just like it could be applied to any industry um, right I'm a big fan of uh, Mark Benioff, who's the the CEO of Salesforce. Um, his philosophy is uh, corporations can be the largest uh, catalyst for uh, as positive change agents as anything else. And I think um, I find a ton of value in that because it all just depends on the approach that the corporation is bringing to the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, uh, business and corporations get a lot of publicity on sort of the, the ways that maybe uh, it could be seen as negatively using their bargaining power or influence to create seemingly um, things that are good for them and not good for anybody else and furtherance of profitability for shareholders. Right. And that's why we we rarely you'll hear me refer to shareholders uh, in as much as I refer to stakeholders um, because it's there's a, there's a broader there's a broader um, pool of impacted, um, invested uh, people in this space and in, in Cresco in general. And I think this industry in particular rewards a more comprehensive, more robust view on, on how you create um, value for stakeholders. That's why I think he, his comment, I absolutely think, is, is exactly what you're interpreting it to be. I don't know if he's necessarily talking about like companies like Cresco or GTI or Trulieve because at the end of the day, we're not big fill in the blank anything. Right. He's also talking about big tobacco, big alcohol and big pharma who invariably will likely want to be in this space and learning from maybe negative uh, events that have happened in those industries over the generations. So, but you know, uh, Kevin is, um, he comments uh, quite a bit on, on uh, this industry and, uh, he's entitled to his opinions. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Well, Charlie, uh, thank you for sitting down with me on the Cole memo. Did you, uh, I know we talked about a lot of serious really got into it, but did you have fun this morning? I did. No, Good. this is a great, great format. Great conversation. Again, Cole memo is a, is a pretty important part of my life. Uh, and now I get to say that I've been on the Cole memo yeah uh, podcast which is pretty cool yeah and i hope this isn't the last time i'd love to do this again sometime in the future and uh look i think there's going to be a lot of things that happen over the next 12 to 24 months that are are conversation worthy so uh be up for it anytime yeah and i guess just a parting note i'll make sure to put this in the uh beginning of the episode because i feel like it's professional of me to do so but i'm actually an owner of cresco believe it or not just like uh, I, I have some stock in Cresco. I think it's like $40 worth, so it's not a lot. Thank you for your but support. But hey, I'm just, you know, visiting my headquarters, you know. I'm just trying to be funny uh, here. But uh, yeah, just for full disclosure here, like I say, I'll put that at the bumper at the front of the episode. But I, I meant to mention that earlier. I've been an investor 
for a few years now. And like I say, not a, not a huge sum, but what I could afford. Appreciate the support. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thank you. Cool. Well, folks, I hope you found as much value in this episode as I did. Charlie, thank you so much. Thank you. Look forward to the next one. Yes, absolutely. Cool. That was a blast. And I just, a, li a little bit over time, just about 15 minutes over time. So thank you for being uh, absolutely flexible with that. You know what's cool is um, about a year ago, I got to uh, meet Jim Cole. Oh, really? And now I have a, I have a relationship uh, with him. He's like, uh, you know, we talk uh, fairly regularly. And he's still engaged in this. Really? Which is cool. It wasn't just, it wasn't just some, you know, fly-by-night thing that he was asked to put out on this. It was thoughtful. Um, there was intention behind it. And he still has uh, not only his view on this, and again, it kind of, it kind of, it was really influential for me back in the day, so it's not a surprise that it still resonates with me, a very similar view on this of, it just needs to be done in a responsible way. And he feels like these are sort of the things that states and stakeholders should be thinking about as they continue to think about cannabis and the legality of it is, you don't want it falling into the hands of kids. You don't want organized crime involved in it. You gotta, you gotta be careful that you, you do this in a responsible and respectable way. And if that's done, perfect. Right. And uh, it's cool to still have him engaged. He's still influential too. You know what I mean? When yeah. Cole Memo is referenced so often, when he calls up somebody and, and wants to talk to them about it, they take the call Yeah. Uh, and they engage with him. So. Well, cool. whenever I uh, inevitably reach out to him for an interview, I will be, I'm mentioning that I had Steve Marks on my show because he mentioned he, he knew uh, Jim as well and I'll, plug your episode too and be like, I had Charlie on, so familiar faces. Let me know if you want any, uh, a lead into the, to the conversation in the ask. Sure. Yeah, no, I was, uh, I was gonna more bluntly ask that in the future, but for now I was just floating out. Yeah. Let me yeah, know when you're absolutely. ready. Uh, I'll reach out to him and That'd be cool. let him know you're, you're gonna call. I think he'll probably be like honored that there's a show named after what he's done. When the cool thing was is in having that conversation with him and I'm like, well, you know, in, in, um, provision two of the well, of your memo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? It was like, I got to call it your memo. It's fucking bizarre. That's hilarious. Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, cool, man. Again, All right. this was awesome. Thank you for being so charitable with your time, too. Uh, I, as you may know, I do the long format podcast, so I'm always appreciative when I can get people to fit that long format. Yeah, it was great. So, it was great. Cool. Well, I'll be just a bit to get this stuff out of your office, but... Do you want me to hit stop on this at all or keep it going? Uh, yeah, yeah, if you don't mind. Okay. And do you mind if I keep, since that was still going, do you mind if I release that as like a behind the scenes thing, what you just said about Jim Cole? Not oh, no. that it was a cool story. Oh, yeah. Right off yeah. The hey, yeah, for sure. Yeah, cool. Yeah, sure. For sure. Cool. So, when's your uh, podcast with the dime? Noon. Noon?